Let's pray again. Father, I covet the anointing of Your Spirit that would direct my words in my heart toward You. May I stand in awe, in fear, over Your Word, over Your purposes in creation this morning. May I preach in such a way that I care ultimately what You think about what I say. To the glory of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. This is week number two in the series, A Journey Through Biblical History or Redemptive History, which I introduced last week. So this morning we're ready to open up the book and to start this journey of looking at what sows all the patches of the historical events laid out in Holy Scripture together. What is this unity, this theme, this purpose at its core of what God is doing in God's story laid out from Genesis to Revelation. But before we open up Genesis 1-1, I want to do something as briefly as I can and say, wait a minute, let's not assume anything here. How, when we open up Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Romans and the book of Revelation, how do we read it? What, what are we to do? How are we to approach those little black marks on the page that are coming at us to get up here with some audacity and say, here is what God means. And so, that's our goal. Let me just start it that way. Is When we open up the Bible... The goal is to glean from the pages what the human author intended to communicate, whether he be Moses or David or Paul or Peter. And so, here's some basic ground rules that I try to live by. And even in your own Bible reading, you wake up, take these to heart. And we're going to need to take them to heart in the next few months of getting very deep about theology and what God is doing and what does the Bible teach about it. First, this. To get at the intended meaning of the author, it means you must be constantly conscious of what you already think about God in order to lay it aside or what you think about man, or what you think about salvation, what you think about the cross, what you think about the church, what you think about anything. You must ask yourself constantly, what do I think, what do I assume, what conclusions have I already come to about how God is or should be? Because if you don't do that, you will carry, and we all have them, every human being has them, preconceived ideas that are right or wrong. You must take your presuppositions 
your ideas about God, and be conscious that they're there in order to do what is basically impossible, but no, try to do it as hard as you can and say, wait a minute, maybe what I thought about God might be wrong. Why is that important? Because to the extent we don't do that, it is amazing how in life, in interpersonal relationships, you utterly mishear the other person. Don't hear what they intend to say. It is amazing how when we read the Bible, there will be a truth about God and we may be a Christian for 30, 40 years and it is the furthest thing from our mind that God should be such a way. And we've read those texts over and over because we have preconceived ideas. So, for instance, take within church fellow believers who are cessationist. In other words, they became a Christian, started going to a particular church that taught and meant it very strongly that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like prophecy or speaking in tongues, have ceased. They have presuppositions about that that for the next 30 years, as they are reading text like chapter 12 to 14 of 1 Corinthians, you wonder why they keep coming out with the same conclusion. Because they started with a conclusion. Or, take 15 years ago, 10 years ago, whenever the Toronto blessing was going on, and there were meetings after meetings every night of the week in in Toronto and all over this country and in England, where there would be so-called physical manifestations of shaking and getting on the ground. Radically subjective... But in that, what you would hear time and time again if someone did try to speak intelligent words was use Scripture and draw conclusions that had absolutely nothing to do with the text in front of them. It is amazing. I talk to Christians at times and they may have heard me teach in a church or in a Bible college about a subject or two that is blatantly everywhere, like election. And they've been in the church for 30 years, and they've never heard such a discussion in their entire life. And they have a Bible that they read. And why is it? What goes on within us frail human beings that we have philosophical points of view, whether we're conscious of them or not, about who God ought to be and how He ought to be, how human beings ought to be, how God ought to deal with people. And we read Romans 9, 10, and 11 anyway, and it just flies over our head because there's something inside of us that says it can't mean what it says. I'm trying to communicate presuppositions. Let me take the interpersonal relationship. Everyone has these experiences. Whether it's with a spouse, whether it's a friend, whether it's at work, or what? Misunderstanding. One human being who speaks 21st century American English speaking to another person who speaks 21st century American English. And when you hear the feedback of, wait a minute. I didn't say that at all. Well, I mean to say words like that, but you totally misinterpreted my meaning. 
We all know that experience. We all know this following quote. We experience it. We've been on both sides of it thousands of times. I know you believe you understand what you think I said, but I am not sure that you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. I want you to hear the Bible constantly saying that to you in these next few months. Or anytime you pick it up, when you pick it up tomorrow morning in your quiet time. How do I approach it? Set aside your preconceived ideas of God. They might be right. What do you got to lose? You just might confirm them. But if they're wrong, you actually might have God change you so that you'll see something about Him more correctly. Hear the Bible say, I know you believe you understand what you think the text says, but I am not sure you realize that what you heard is not what the text means. So the first point is this. Lay your presuppositions presupposing ideas about God, salvation, etc. aside every time you pick up the text of Scripture so that the sentences and the way a sentence connects to another sentence and makes a unit of thought, a paragraph, and how that paragraph is connected to the previous paragraph and the following paragraph so that they will have their day in the courtroom of your mind and of your understanding. So, and then secondly, real briefly, and how do we approach Bible? Just a real simple thing. Those big numbers that say chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, or then say verse 1, 2, 3, all the way through, you must train yourself to ignore them. They're not inspired. They're not part of the biblical text. The chapters were given... 1200 or so A.D. after the fact. The verses in the New Testament in the 1551 or so while a guy on horseback was rushing to meet a deadline at the printer and put them in there. Because, in other words, don't look at... Oh, I'm at the end of the chapter. It must be the end of what Paul meant here. Because they are in miserably terrible places at times. Right? They break up the subject from a verb at times. So, in other words, ignore chapter and verse divisions. Now, they're, they're, they're wonderful to be able to say, turn here, and you can get there really quickly. Without that, you'd be going for 20 minutes. Third thing, therefore, is what? What we want to do is to get at the intended meaning of the human author, whether he be Paul or Peter or Moses. Jeremiah, David, the redactors or editors of the Kings and Samuel. We want to get at what is intended by what is written right here, right now. Let me take that for a minute and say, why? Because I hope you aren't, many people by what I've talked about so far can be very turned off. Here is the reason because there are Christians who think, what I'm talking about, now nah, let's just have a relationship, just read the Bible, brother. You don't need to interpret it. They interpret it all the time. 
everyone always is interpreting anything they read or any oral conversation they have by definition. The question is whether we are interpreting accurately or not. But I want to cloak it this way, why it's so important. There are two major goals to read the Bible. The first is the ultimate goal. We are desperate to have our hearts changed. We're desperate to be able to come into a deep, emotional, visceral, loving, delighting in relationship with God. Listen to the way Isaiah says this in chapter 66, verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at My Word. My goal in everything I've said up to this point about interpretation is that we're desperate to be a person who trembles at the words of God in Holy Scripture. Listen to the way Jesus spoke in John 15.11. These things I have spoken to you Okay, there are words now. The question is, what do you mean by those words, Jesus? These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's the goal. And yes, there are lots of people that deal with the Bible without that goal and they bore me and I want nothing to do with them really. And I don't want to be one of them just so I can know one more doggone blasted thing after the other. Just so I can have a theology. I don't care for it as an end. God is the end. In my relationship with Him is the end. And now, because that's true, thus, you cannot get around the use of your intellect, your mind, leaning from the marks, those little black marks all over your Bible, and say, what do they mean? Why? Because the truth, like Isaiah says, He who troubles it, my word. Jesus says, I spoke these words for your joy. The truth that we are so desperate to be changed by and moved by is given in the form of a book. Really, 66 books. But a book, and by definition, a book must be read. And to read is an intensely intellectual act. When we open up the Bible, there is no such thing as a divine God language. I mean, you got the Greeks, you got the Hebrews, you got American 21st century English, you got 1500s England English, you have German. These are human stuff. But the Bible, no, 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 no. You have this divine God language with divine kind of verbs in the way they structure sentences. It's not what you have. This book is not dropped out of heaven. Rule number one. Rule number two. 
this book, 66 books, whether prophets, whether narrative, whether Paul writing a letter, whether gospels, is inspired by God. God superintended every jot and tittle in writing. How so? Through the minds, the cultures, the language conventions of the particular human authors in a particular historical context. And therefore, the way to get at what the text here in Genesis or Romans or anywhere else means is only through the particular language conventions of that human author. Now, don't let it fly over. Here, here's the bottom line. People don't realize this. They do this, what I just said, every day of their life. I just use, I know I use technical human language convention. Because, you know, English has rules that are different than another language. But every person in this room, does it when you go out and you pick up your newspaper. And you bring it in, and on the front page, in one sense, this is true, what is there is a bunch of black little markings. And you, without thinking about it now, interpret it. You are... Why are you doing that? Because the newspaper you get is in your particular language conventions that you knew, at least orally, from the time you were three years old, pretty much. And then you developed them, and then you understood how to, how to interpret, not just oral, but how we're going to mark those down. And so, off that page comes a particular language convention to which you find yourself drawing conclusions about what the person who wrote it meant. It's as simple as that. But if you were to wake up tomorrow in Iran and you don't know Farsi and you pick up the newspaper in Farsi that's all it is is chicken scratch you cannot decipher meaning from that page of those black marks all over it because you're not familiar with the particular language conventions and so you all have English Bibles wonderful Translations are wonderful. Therefore, you have the capacity to stop, think, read, and decipher what did that apostle mean by these markings. And that's all I'm really talking about. Do that. Because the only way to get at who is God, what is His nature like, why does he do this? Why does he do that? The question is, does he answer that? And to the extent he does, the only way to get at that is through deciphering the meaning on the pages of Scripture. Now, in most Christians' minds, it should be all Christians' minds, should come, wait a minute. What about the Holy Spirit? What role does the Holy Spirit play? Well, I am on purpose saying the role of the Holy Spirit is not to tell you how the subject relates to the verb. If you know English, 
You do it every day in the front page of your newspaper. It's the same thing. English is this way. The subject comes before the verb and the object comes after. Now, you may be in another society with a different language like German and it does it a little bit differently. You, you may speak Greek and, and, and write in Greek and that rule is not necessarily for that language convention. But the Holy Spirit's job isn't to tell you what it means on the page. It means what the writer meant. You need to read it and decipher the meaning of what they put there in human language in context of their time, etc. The role of the Holy Spirit, and it is, oh, it is ultimately very necessary for Christians, the work of the Spirit in their biblical interpretation. Why? His job is to cause our hearts to love and to welcome the results of what you decipher clearly and accurately on the pages of Scripture. Now, why is that necessary? <laughs> because clear reading, reading well, this book will give to you all kinds of meanings that left to yourself, you will abhor. You will not like the results of what it says about you. And by yourself, apart from the work of the Spirit, you will not like what it says about God. And thus, without knowing it, subconsciously, what happens, you will twist it. Because deep down here, on the subconscious level, there's something that says, you know it can't mean that, thus you're going to cause it to be saying something to you that it does not say. Oh, we're desperate to have the work of the Spirit to break us to cause us to welcome the clear reading of Scripture in its context. Okay, it's as brief as I could have done that. That was the foundation for the next few months. And I hope it's helpful in your own reading of Scripture. So now, Genesis 1.1. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to read Genesis 1.1 to chapter 2, verse 3. Remember, I said, ignore the chapter divisions. Why to 2, verse 3? Because it's a terrible break. I think it's obvious that God superintended and had the writing of Genesis be based here on what? Days. Well, the seventh day is the beginning of chapter 2. You don't break it there. And so as I read, I'm going to read editing for time's sake. So we get the flow, but I will leave out and jump because just simply because of time. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, 3. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. 
and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening. And there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day.
and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. The foundation of all redemptive history, God's history, God's saving history, is this verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Meaning, by created, He brought into existence from nothing everything that is not God. There is nothing except the eternal God the Son and God the Holy Spirit that is eternal, that is without beginning, that is that has the very power of existence, self-existence, power of being. Nothing is eternal with this one God. And thus, everything in existence that is not God owes its origin to the one God. Paul says in Romans, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be the glory forever. And since we have a whole book here now, in other words, since later revelation from Genesis makes it very clear, yes, there's one God in being, but He has always by nature eternally existed in three persons. Since we know that, we can say, and ought to say, and I will in the type of course I'm teaching, clearly say, do you see creation? Let me say along with the Apostle Paul, therefore, in Colossians chapter 1, that Christ, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. So we see that God the Father created through the Son everything that is not God. The big mystery of creation is how can something come from nothing? That's not a scientific question in our world. Science deals with the somethings that are there. And when a so-called scientist says, over quadrillion billion years, there's enough time for something to spring out of nothingness, by chance, that's not a scientific statement. That's a philosophical Assumption. And the Bible doesn't teach technically that all this something 
came from nothing, God is not nothing. What we mean by that is that there was nothing created. There was no physicality nor spirituality of creation. In that sense, from nothing out there, God brought in to being and existence everything that is not God. Listen to how Paul said this in Romans 4.17. God gives life to the dead and He calls into existence the things that do not exist. And so what we see here, very first verse of redemptive history, is that God addresses His command to nothingness out there. And nothingness obeys it and obeys Him and His voice and becomes something. But our whole text, I think, trying to say, what is God's superintendent? What was His purpose? Why did He not just stop? Okay, God created, we got that. Why does He tell the story with the seven days? What is He doing? Is there a purpose And I conclude, yes, there's a purpose. And so we read, what is that purpose? What is God up to? Or say it this way, from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, what's the point? Why did God have the human author pen it this way? What is the point? Let's look at it then. Because there is purpose. Notice the flow throughout the text of the term, and it was good. And then it was good. He he repeats it over and over on every day, except for day two. And then you come to the creation of humanity, and then he sees it all, and the text does not say it was good. Now it says, it was very good. And so you ask, here's the first five and a half days, because on the first half of day six, the creation of the mammals and walking animals. Here's the first five and a half days, it's good, it's good, it's good. So you think, you ask questions of the author, what's it good for? And the obvious answer is so that he could come to the climax and it was very good. I I think that's the flow of the text. Now you ask, what was so very good that when he finally led up to five and a half days and now the creation of mankind, what's so very good about that and the answer is right there in verse 26 to 31 it's right on the page the reason i think he's saying this is it this i got the eternal one before creation now there's creation and god says wow this is it it's because he creates humanity in his image. It is emphasized in the image 
reflection of God. He created them. Male and female, He created them. All the other things, this ball we're on, the sun which we're flinging around, the plants and the animals and every other created thing, living or inanimate, was all for the purpose of the climax of God imaging forth Himself in humanity. That seems to be clear as we open up this great book. And so we see then He what? He goes and He commands man, His image, go rule over all creation. And multiply. Make more of you. Let my image go outward in creation. I think, think with me, is this not an appropriate inference from this text? That the point was the image of God, that is the creation of humanity, human beings who are reflecting His image, are to rule over all creation in a praiseworthy manner that will extend and reflect God Himself. A reflection, an image of Him. The Bible says this this way. It's what it means when it talks about the glory, the radiance going outward of God Himself. So they're supposed to rule and reign in such a way that God is glorified or reflected. So I think the basic meaning of the opening paragraph of Genesis and thus of the Bible is that God created the universe, yes, but why? In order, there's, here it is, to display outside of Himself, that's called creation by definition, display outside of Himself His glory, His goodness, His image. That's why anything is that is not God. That's so foundational to Christianity, to every breath we take. That's the core. That's the message over the next few months. To see it everywhere. And it's repeated over and over again. And it's not peripheral. To the extent we don't feel it or think it, to that extent we will miss what God is saying in Holy Scripture. Just stand in your minds here. Don't stand, stand. Before this text that we have seen so far this morning. And I mean feel it. Because wait, I mean it, feel it because it's so easy. I know creation story. I heard it a thousand times in your minds. Don't let it happen. If it's true, God created everything, and thus every person, from nothing, and all that who are not God, then it is solid, steel, truth, that every heartbeat that you have, every breath that you take, is dependent 
upon that God who brought you into being. Because no creature, no creature has within themselves, ourselves, the power of self-existence by definition. You would not exist or continue to exist without the continual and perpetual preservation of God. Hebrews 1.3 said it this way, He, God, in Christ upholds the universe by the word of His power. If God, who said, let there be light, let us make man in our image, if He ceased to address your soul, your body, with this command, B, you would cease to exist. Now, over the next few weeks that I'm here in this series, we're going we're gonna to stop here and we're going to ask this massive question deeper because I want to unfold, wait a minute, okay, He created and here's the reason He created to image forth His glory in creation through humanity. But still, that's massive. Because we're going to come back and we have to ask, what is it about God that would motivate Him to do such a thing? I'll leave it there. We're going to come back there. Before I close this morning, I just want to leave you with a few implications from this creation story that I hope settle within our hearts deeply in our relationship with God. First is this. If it's true that God created everything that is not God, then it is true. I'm just going to speak it really slowly because I think so many of us Christians don't really believe this. Then it is true that God owns everything and everybody. Absolutely. Psalm 24.1 The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those people who dwell in it. It belongs to Him, the Creator. See, first possessions. We may and appropriately may Think of ourselves as owning stuff. Lands, houses, properties, cars, wallets, clothing. In relationship to other, horizontally, other human beings. But in relationship to God, we don't own anything. 
He owns it all. And He has a right over it all. That's why even for us Christians as, as tithers, 10% off the top, okay, the God owns that, but the 90% means I own it, not God, and therefore I can do with it whatever I so well please without even consulting Him or caring about His glory in it. It's a terribly wrong conclusion. Part B of implication number one is He owns everybody. Absolutely. We are the clay and He is the potter. And He can do with the clay whatever He pleases. I won't go to Isaiah and the other prophets who speak this way clearly. Paul gets it from them. But listen to how Paul summarizes this in Romans 9, verses 20 to 21. Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? And Paul's answer is clear. The potter has absolute rights over the clay of every human being. This is an appropriate place to take your spiritual temperature. If Paul's words, Isaiah's words, that he's the potter and we're the clay, that he, as creator, has absolute rights over us to do what he will, if those words sound sweet to you, the temperature says, that's a mark of the grace of God and the maturity of your soul in Christ. But if those words are offensive and you resent the idea that God is that much in control of me, His creature, and you don't like that idea, then it's a mark of the flesh which needs repentance. At the core of the way Paul uses the word flesh, the sinful nature in every Christian who's truly come into Christ by the Spirit, we have battles with the flesh. That flesh, at the core of it, is this innate desire of independence, autonomy from God to be my own man, to be my own woman, to guide my own future, to be in control. My will is sovereign. It's the flesh. But the rise of true saving faith to us broken, sinful creatures at its core, I can say it this way in this context, saving faith at its core is that rise 
of a miraculous collapse of our rebellion against God is absolute potter. The one who has absolute rights over our life. In the beginning, He created. And the potter has rights over His creation. Whether it be a rock or whether it be your soul and your body. Second implication this morning is that creation, everything that exists that is not God, has a reason, has a purpose for being and existing. And ultimately, that purpose, which is God's purpose, will never be in jeopardy. Isaiah 46.10, God speaks and says very clearly, I am God, and there is none like Me. I who declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel, that is, My purpose, shall stand, and I will accomplish all My purpose. And we have seen that that purpose, it may have lots of tentacles that are leading to this one thing always. God's purpose. Reason for existence of everything that is not God is that He display His glory far and wide. That's it. Numbers. Just move from there. You go into that of books of Moses and you go to Numbers. 1421, God was clear. What was His intention? He said, My intention is this, that I will fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. Isaiah the prophet, a few hundred years later, speaks this way. God speaks this way through him. Everyone who is called by My name, that is, those whom I created, why? For My glory. You go to the New Testament. You go to that marvelous, long, 13 verse or so sentence of Paul in Ephesians chapter one, and Paul's talking about broken, sinful, ugly people whom God is saving in Christ. And he says this three times. Why, God? What is your purpose? It didn't change from creation. He says three times, He's done this and is doing this in Christ in saving you believers for the praise of His glory. No wonder Paul says, and he means, and he doesn't mean Christian ease, he means something profoundly theological and deep when he says, whatever you do, whether you drink or eat, do it all to the glory of God. And the final implication is that if we are creatures 
then we, by definition, whether we think it or feel it, we are utterly dependent on our Creator for everything. Believer or unbeliever, we are weaker than the most decrepit infant baby. Because apart from dependence, a connection that God has with you as a creature, you would cease to exist. You would fly into nothingness. Every breath that we take, every good intention that we think and then act on and do, is by its definition your creature, a gift, an absolute free gift of God the Creator's mercy. He owes you nothing. And so the lesson is really clear, I think, that we here now, in abundant grace, cannot glorify God as the all-sufficient Creator and Sustainer of all life and of everything unless we are coming into a disposition of little children dependent upon Him as Father. Father, teach us. Let us grow into little children in relationship with You through Your Spirit and by Your Son. Oh, Father, may You give the members of this church over the next month a real active mind and heart towards what will be unfolding. May You give them a hunger to taste and to see what it means for You to create us in Your image and to not leave us to Your wrath, but to save us from Your purposes before the foundation of the world in Christ so that You would be glorified in that, in this, and in everything. May we find our purpose, our desire to seek the extension of Your glory. Oh, may those words make all the sense in the world to the souls of all of us here at Abundant Grace. May even in this week of grief, in tears, may we find Your glory extended because the tears come from a hope in You, ultimately and a trust in You, foundationally. Father, let us taste the precious Word of God as being absorbed in our beings and flowing out every aspect of our life. In Jesus' precious name.
Amen.